Isaiah 35, 1 through 10 says this. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let's pray together. Lord, before we even talk about joy and what it is and where it comes from, Lord, we want to praise you for being the God who brings us into joy. Lord, that our joy is in you. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come from all sorts of different experiences this week and as we prepare for all sorts of different experiences this week. God, we pray that deeply rooted in us would be cause for joy greater than anything we can encounter in this world. Lord, even if this next week is full of insane, awesome celebrations, pray that it would pale in comparison to the joy you've already given us in Jesus. We pray that you would teach us, Lord, that you would bless your people today, that you would bless the redeemed people of God. As we worship you, as we read your word, Lord, we open ourselves up to you and ask that you would speak, that you would lead, that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, the Declaration of Independence has taught us all that one of our inalienable rights is the pursuit of happiness. Now, I'm not here to cast shade on any of the founding fathers, but I do question the way this has been interpreted throughout the years. You see, the right to pursue happiness is not the same as the right to be happy. They're two very different things, and yet millions of Americans live their lives believing that they are entitled to pleasant things, that they are entitled to happiness. This has led to an entire culture of people believing that it is, it is appropriate to experience and to receive 
pleasure upon pleasure, experience upon experience, just being gluttons of of pleasure and, and happiness and believing that it's good, that we should not withhold from ourselves any good thing, because if it feels good, then do it. And if it feels good, then it can't be bad. And so we have the right to pursue happiness. And so I should not have to withhold from myself anything that would make me happy. The irony of this is that the pursuit of happiness is actually one of the things preventing us from experiencing joy. Being so focused on the pursuit of these little things that make us happy just keep us distracted from thinking about the grander things and the more beautiful reasons that we have to have lasting joy in life. See, joy is not the same thing as happiness. Joy and happiness are not synonyms. Joy is something beyond happiness. See, happiness comes and goes with the changes of our circumstances. Something good happens to you, you can be happy about it. Something desirable, something pleasant, pleasurable happens, you can be happy about that. But as soon as that thing is over, you need another fix. You need another new toy. You need another uh, romantic partner. You need more money. You need another job. You need something to change, something better to make you happy again. Happiness comes and goes with the change of circumstances, but joy has the ability to transcend our circumstances because it's rooted in something far deeper and far more powerful than our circumstances. In the Sermon on the Mount in in Matthew 5 verses 11 through 12, Jesus says something profound. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Now reviling persecution and evil are not good things. They're not pleasurable circumstances. And yet Jesus says that in them, you can rejoice and be glad because our status in heaven is more important than what others can say or what others can do or what the whole world can bring against us. Our status in heaven is is far more significant, far more a greater reason for joy than our circumstances. And so joy is a deep contentment and satisfaction that transcends your circumstances because it's rooted in God's saving work in your life. It's far greater than circumstances. It's rooted in something deeper. It's rooted in God's saving work in our life. And so this joy, according to our text, causes the world around us, causes us and the world around us to be transformed. This, uh, this text, Isaiah 35, reminds me of those cartoons uh, back in the day where someone um, is just walking along and there's just a little storm cloud above them the entire time, everywhere they go. It could be rainbows and butterflies everywhere else, but there's just a little storm cloud. Doom and gloom just follows this person wherever they go. This poem in Isaiah 35 reminds me of this because it's telling the exact opposite story. See, everywhere the people of God go, 
the dry, barren, fruitless land becomes a garden. Becomes this garden paradise. And so imagine the people of God walking through this desert wilderness and everywhere they plant their foot, just like life and beauty and color and flowers just bloom out of the desert land and it becomes this beautiful place. That's the image that Isaiah is painting for us here. And so we need to recognize that contrary to popular belief, you are not entitled to happiness. You are not entitled to happiness. And yet our text tells us that everlasting joy is possible. You're not entitled to it, but it is possible. It describes the joy that is available to the people of God and how we are to experience it. But first, we need to understand this poem in a little bit of context. See, the book of Isaiah was written prior to Israel going into exile. Isaiah wrote this book before they were deported from Israel and into Babylon. Isaiah comes to them and tells them what's going to happen. You are going to go into exile. It is going to be brutal. Okay, you're going to experience sorrow and difficulty and suffering. And even though it will be difficult, he gives them this picture of hope that they are going to come home again. Before they even go into exile, he tells them that it's happening and he tells them they're going to come back. And then the immediate context of this passage is significant, specifically the chapter immediately before. Chapter 34 and chapter 35, what we just read, are actually mirror images of one another. I want to read a portion of chapter 34 so you can get the feel for it. It says, For the Lord has a day of vengeance a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever from generation to generation until it lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Thorns and thistles shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches and wild animals shall meet with hyenas. Now, if you've familiarize yourself with chapter 35, you'd see a lot of the same imagery in reverse. See, in chapter 34, God shows up to a fruitful land, and that fruitful land becomes a barren wilderness, a barren desert. It just dries up and dies because of the vengeance and recompense of God. There are wild animals there, and no one can travel through that land. It's desolate. While in chapter 35, God shows up again in vengeance and recompense. Shows up to the desert land, shows up to the wilderness land. And all of a sudden, the wilderness starts blooming and becoming this beautiful place. And there is a a, a safe path, this highway through the land for travelers to travel on and return to God. It's safe for them. And so you've got these opposite images, God shows up in two very different reactions. And so we have to ask, why does God's presence result in one land receiving judgment and the other land receiving joy? Well, there's some historical context to this. 
See, during this time, Assyria, the kingdom of Assyria, was threatening Jerusalem. And the king of Jerusalem, in his attempt to provide protection for his people, did not go to God. He went to Egypt. He reached out to Pharaoh and he said, Pharaoh, come save us. And so Isaiah 34 records the consequences for those who put their trust in worldly power instead of God, while Isaiah 35 records the reward for those who, come, those who wait on the Lord, trusting in God to come and to bring salvation. Now, we all want more of chapter 35 and less of chapter 34, right? Right? Don't you want more garden and less desert and more joy and less judgment? So how can we be certain that when God shows up in our lives, we will experience it as joy instead of judgment? When God's people trust in the world, like Israel trusted in Egypt, when we trust in the pleasures of this world to be our happiness, rather than the God of this world to be our joy, we become enslaved to the world. We become imprisoned by those things. We need those things. What's your, 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 uh, your delight? Is it, is it uh, retail therapy? You go out and, and buy a thing and you're so happy. And you know what? You look good in that new Christmas sweater. But by next Christmas, it's like, meh, I need something different. By Valentine's Day, you need something different. You make a purchase and the, the delight that it brings wears off. And so you become enslaved to this pattern of needing something new, needing something greater, needing something different. You get bored with what you have. And so when the delights of this world are the things that we're pursuing, we become enslaved to those things. And God shows up and offers you a world of joy. And it's like, meh, I like these things over here. And so when we trust in the things of the world, we become enslaved to the things of this world. But God is the one who redeems us from this world, from slavery to the things of this world, and gives us the joy that we're longing for. And so what we need to recognize, the first thing I really want us to, to drill down on and, 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 and focus on, is that our text teaches us that redemption is the reason for joy. There's all kinds of beautiful, good things in this world, but they can't be our joy. They will be our taskmasters if we trust in them. But redemption is the reason for joy. To redeem someone is to rescue them from something, usually by making some kind of payment. And in the ancient context, someone could be redeemed from prison or redeemed from slavery. They could be rescued from those things by paying a debt or by paying a ransom. Now, our text uses both of these terms to describe the people of God. They are redeemed because they have been ransomed. A debt has been paid in order to redeem them. But in Israel's story, redemption meant something so much more than just this. See, re redemption is, is who they, it's what they were. They were the redeemed people of God. 
Okay, God had rescued them, redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, and called them into this beautiful covenant relationship with himself. And so this backdrop, the redemption from Egypt, is particularly important for our text because the imagery that we see in our text is the redeemed people of God traversing a desert wilderness, which would immediately in the Jewish mindset bring up ideas of the Exodus. Isaiah is saying that a new Exodus is coming, not one from Egypt but one that would deliver them from this experience of exile. It's going to happen again. Even though they will experience bondage in Babylon, God will redeem them. He will call them out of captivity and back into the land and back into relationship with himself. And so the reason that Israel can experience joy, even in the midst of hardship, is because the truest thing about them is not their circumstance but their identity. Even in exile, they are the redeemed people of God. They have been redeemed. They are redeemed. They will be redeemed again because it's who they are. More importantly, it's who God is. God is a redeemer. God is a savior. God is the one who rescues his people. And so this is where their joy is to come from. And this is where their joy will come from. The presence of God coming to them to redeem them. Now, redemption takes on a more significant, uh, uh, more profound meaning in the New Testament. See, redemption is now available to anyone who trusts in Jesus as Lord. It's not just given to Israel. It's not just given to, uh, to the, the Jewish people. It, is, it has come in Christ to anyone who would put their faith in Jesus, that your identity can be the redeemed people of God because of Jesus. See, we are redeemed not from some physical slavery or debt, but because we are redeemed from spiritual slavery and the debt that is created by our own sin. Scripture says that the wages of sin is death, but Jesus has paid our ransom with his own blood. He has purchased us back. He has traded himself. He has redeemed us with his own life. And so scripture says that we have been bought with a price. Our lives do not belong to us, but we belong to Jesus. That anyone who trusts in what Christ has done through faith can be redeemed from the slavery of things in this world and the slavery to sin and be transferred from the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved son. Through faith, you can belong to Jesus. And this is the greatest cause for joy because no matter what happens in this life, you have been redeemed. Whatever circumstances you face, you have been redeemed. This is why Jesus can say in the Sermon on the Mount that even if persecution comes to you, even if if you are reviled and people tell lies about you, you're good. You can rejoice because your reputation is not the reason for your joy. Your redemption is is the reason for your joy. And so we can have joy in all things. But there's a problem, isn't there? There's a problem. If you're a Christian and you're honest, 
If you're a Christian, you should be honest. You'll admit that you don't experience joy as often as you think the Bible tells you you should. You don't experience the, the amount of joy that you want to experience. You don't experience the, the joy welling up, the, the bubbling out in life. You experience hardship, you experience trial, and it gets to you. Church, it gets to me. I don't experience joy nearly as much as I think I should be experiencing joy. And there's something in this passage that we need to address that most of us don't like to talk about. See, the redeemed people of God have a journey to make. They have to go from one place to the next. They're going to go from Babylon to Zion, to the temple in Jerusalem. They have a journey to make. And the path into that eternal joy in the presence of God, our text calls the way of holiness. See, one of the reasons the redeemed people of God struggle to experience joy is because we're not taking holiness seriously. We have received redemption by grace. Yes, that is the reason for our joy. But now we must walk in the way of holiness because holiness is the way to joy. Most of the time when people talk about holiness, they talk about it in terms of moral perfection, right? If, if someone thinks they are holier than thou, it means they do everything right. They're better than you. They get every, you know, uh, uh, they, they, they know what to do and they do, they're, they're holy. They're perfect. They're flawless. They're righteous. They're sinless. Most of the time, that's what we think about when we talk about holiness, someone who is morally perfect. But holiness has only come to mean that to us because of Israel's story. It's not what holiness actually means. See, this is significant. I don't think we, we get this all the time. To be holy means to be set apart. It means to be different, to be distinct from what is ordinary, to be distinct from common things. So for instance, God is holy, not because he is morally perfect. He is morally perfect, but that's not why he's holy. God is holy because he's different than you. He is different than the rest of creation. There are two categories in existence. There's God and not God. Everything that is not God is is common. It's ordinary. But God is different. He is distinct. He is set apart. He's other. He is holy. The vessels in the temple, the the instruments in the temple used to worship God are called holy, not because they're different than any other plate or lamp or table or all of the things that are found in the temple and the tabernacle. They are holy because they are set apart for sacred use. They are different. This is a different plate than any other plate in the world. It's the plate where, you know, the, the, the bread of the presence was placed. This table, this lampstand, this box where the, tab, the tablets of the, the Ten Commandments are in. It is different than any other box because it is set apart for sacred use. It is set apart for a particular use. And so we usually only use the word holy when we're referring to, to spiritual things or religious things, but you have holy things in your house. 
there are holy things in your house. And I'm not talking about your Bible or your underwear. Okay, there are holy things in your house. I want you to think about your toothbrush. Your toothbrush is holy. It has one job and one job only. To clean your mouth. It can be used probably quite effectively to clean lots of other things. But the moment it does, it ain't going back in your mouth. It is defiled. It's unclean. It's unholy. See, this is what it means to be holy. It is set apart for sacred use. Israel was called to be holy as God is holy. They were called to be set apart, different, appointed for the special task of demonstrating God's wisdom and justice to the world. God's plan was for all of the nations. And he called Israel to be his holy people, appointed to the special task of taking God's wisdom, his character, and his justice to the ends of the earth. That is why they were holy. They were set apart. Notice that morality is not the immediate implication of Israel's holiness. They weren't holy because they had the law. They were holy, and so God gave them the law. The reason holiness is now associated with moral perfection is because the way Israel was supposed to demonstrate God's character and demonstrate his wisdom to the world was by living by the law. The law, get this, the law did not make Israel holy. God made Israel holy. And because they were holy, and were given a special task, God gave them the law to show them how to do it. The law is instructions in their holiness. It is not the reason for their holiness. See, God saved Israel from slavery in Egypt before he ever gave them the law. God saved them by grace. And then he gave them the law. Had God given Israel the law while they were in Egypt, Israel could say, we are saved by the law. But they received their redemption before the law even came. Israel was not saved by the law. They were saved by grace. The law taught them how to live in light of that, to put that grace on display. They were saved by the grace of the God who redeemed them and made them holy. But now that they are his holy people, they have a holy responsibility. But Israel rejected God's law and forfeited that holy responsibility. Not just by their sin. God had given them a way for their sin to be forgiven. All of the sacrifices or a way to have their sin forgiven, to be covered by the blood of the sacrifice, to be uh, uh, atoned for so that they could maintain their right relationship with God. The thing that made them unholy is they lived like all of the other nations. They lost their distinctiveness. They worshiped the gods of other nations. 
They practiced the same things as other nations. They, they uh, promoted injustice and oppression. They did not care for the poor, or for the needy. They did not do the things in the law. And so they were living like every other nation. They had lost their holiness, their distinctiveness, because they looked like everybody else. And so they lost that distinctiveness. They were full of idolatry, injustice, and oppression. They were no longer set apart. They were no longer operating in holiness. And like a toothbrush that has fallen in the toilet. They were no longer fit for their purpose. They had to be cleansed. Imagine the kind of cleansing that would be required for you to be okay putting that toothbrush back in your mouth. Okay, this isn't just like running it underwater. What Israel needed was not just the same old ritualistic cleansing. They needed something, they needed a new toothbrush. They needed to be made new. See, you are cleansed, not because you turn from your sin and do some good action. You are cleansed. You are made holy because God has redeemed you. He has made you holy. He has given you a cleansing far greater than anything you could do for yourself. The blood of Christ has covered you and washed you as clean as the driven snow if you put your faith in Jesus. And so something needed to happen for Israel in order for this text to be possible, in order for this idea of joy in this garden paradise and the presence of God, something had to happen. Something had to make them holy again. And so if you have been lacking joy in your life, you must take this seriously. Are you walking in holiness? Are you walking in distinctiveness? Have you embraced the reality that you are not supposed to be like the world? So often, for the sake of evangelism, we try to be relevant, but we become so relevant that we become just like the world and we don't give, them, we don't give the world something to, to aspire to, to look at and say, this God is a God of wisdom, this God is a God of grace, of glory, of beauty, of justice, of salvation. We've become so relevant, we've lost our distinctiveness. Don't sacrifice and forfeit your holiness. Walk in holiness. Walk in distinctiveness. Walk in a manner that is set apart for God's glory. If you're not walking in holiness, don't be surprised that you're not going to experience joy. Think about a marriage. If one spouse does not operate in the, the reality of having been set apart for their spouse, only for their spouse, and is unfaithful to the marriage covenant, joy just ain't going to happen. It's not going to be possible, even if the other person doesn't know about it. You know about it, and you can't possibly be happy in a relationship that you know you have betrayed. The same is true for our covenant with God. If you are not walking in distinctiveness, in a set-apartness, in a holiness, set apart as a life that exists for God and God only, then every time you try to come into God's presence, there's, there's just a roadblock to joy. 
because you know what's going on in your world. Are you walking in holiness? It's one thing to recognize the need for redemption or the need for holiness and turn to God. But it's another thing to have known the grace of God, to know the redemption of God and have turned away from it. See, sometimes the hardest thing to do is not to turn to God, but to return to God. And yet this is exactly what's happening in our text. The way of holiness is the way of return. They're returning from exile. They're going back to the promised land, back to God's presence. And many people today don't need to turn to God. They need to return to God. Maybe you're here and you haven't been experiencing joy because you know the the compromise that you're making in your life, the, the sacrifice to holiness that you're making. And what God is asking for you to do today is to return and you feel maybe disqualified from the invitation to return to him. I want you to consider Israel in this moment, in exile, having rebelled against God, worshiping other gods, defiled, unfit for God's purposes. But God is inviting them to return. Maybe you believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, and you've, but you've spent some time distanced from him. And the shame of where you've been is keeping you from feeling welcomed back into his presence. You don't have, you don't have joy where you are in life. The invitation to you today is to return to him, to get back on the path and follow Jesus. I really like that the way to joy is identified as the path of holiness. The the way um, gives us direction, right? This is the way, right? How do I get here? Well, this this is the way. This is the direction that you need to go. It gives us a trajectory, right? To set our course. It's like railroad tracks, right? The railroad tracks give us a direction and it keeps the train on the path keeps the train from from veering off and and going someplace different. But the railroad tracks, the path, the trail, the street, the tracks of the train have no power to actually move you down the path. They just point you in the right direction. A train needs an engine to move it down the tracks. And so holiness is the way to joy. It points us in the right direction. But Jesus is the power that moves us down the tracks. Jesus is the power for joy. See, Israel would eventually be rescued from their exile. They would go back to the temple. They would rebuild Jerusalem. They'd rebuild the land. But everything uh, that they had experienced, all of the newness, all of the invitation back did not accomplish the everlasting joy that is promised to them when they returned to their land. They still experienced sorrow and sighing. They still experienced oppression 
under a harsh foreign rule. They were still waiting for God to come to them in vengeance and recompense and get rid of their enemies and establish the kingdom of God. They were still waiting for God. And yet this is what we on this side of the story, what we experience every Christmas. Every Christmas, we celebrate the coming of God to his people and accomplishing redemption. Luke 2, 10 through 12 records the night when Jesus was born, when the angelic choir appears to the shepherds watching their flocks and says, the angels say to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day in the city of David is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Redeemer, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The redemption, the the, the coming of God to bring redemption that Israel had been waiting for came to them that first Christmas morning, but it didn't look like redemption. It looked like a baby. It looked like weakness. It looked like insignificance. It looked like something very different than they needed. But the child in the manger is the power for our joy because the child in the manger is our redeemer. We were slaves to sin, doomed to destruction. But 1 Corinthians says you were bought with a price. And that price that was paid was paid by the baby in the manger when it became the man on the cross, when he ransomed your life by trading himself on the cross for yours. The child in the manger is the power for our joy because that child in the manger, Jesus Christ, is also our way of holiness. If you want to know how to be holy, yeah, you can look at the 613 laws in the Old Testament. That'll give you an idea. But Jesus says, I've fulfilled it all on your behalf. Follow me. The way of holiness is following Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no way to the Father. There is no way to joy but through Him. And through faith, you are called to holiness. You are called to be set apart for God's purposes, to put the righteousness and the love and the grace of Jesus on display. This is your holy calling. If you are in Christ, you have been made holy to live a holy life, to live a life that is set apart for a sacred purpose, to put the character and love and beauty of Jesus on display. This holy calling, it doesn't mean that we will never sin again. It doesn't mean that we are morally perfect. It doesn't mean that we are sinless. It doesn't mean that we need to pretend that we are. Okay, it means that by the grace of God in Jesus, those who believe are holy. You are holy. Not because of your conduct, but because of Jesus. But because you are holy, your conduct should look different. It should change the way that you live. We are holy because Jesus has made us holy. And so we live like it. We stop living like the rest of the world and start living like Jesus. Your redemption does not depend on it, but your joy does. 
Your joy absolutely depends on the way you are living your life and whether or not it is aligned with the way that God wants you to live your life. Some of you know what it's like to do something that you feel like you were made for, right? It is as equally life-giving as it is strenuous. You know what it's like to feel like uh, uh, just a glove on God's hand, that he is working in you. He is moving through you. He is accomplishing this thing, that he has made you for this. Some of you know what that's like. And some of you know what it's like to operate outside of that making, outside of that calling. It's like hammering a nail with your phone. It might get the job done, but in the end, it's no longer a phone. It's a broken piece of junk. And so we can do lots of things and receive lots of happiness from all kinds of things, but it's not what we were made for. And over a while, it just grates on us and breaks us and, and, and uh, uh, corrupts. And so we were made for God's glory. And if we live for the glory of another, we will experience this damage being done to us. It robs us of our joy. One of the primary reasons we don't experience the joy that we want is because we too often look for it in places outside of Jesus. We, we acknowledge Jesus, we believe in Jesus, but then we continue to look for joy elsewhere. We look for joy in the things that we do or the things that happen to us. When we're needing a little joy, it's easy to turn to you know, comfort food, right? To turn to food and drink or to turn uh, to sex or a purchase of a new toy or looking to amuse ourselves or just disappearing into our phones. And the reason we look to those things is because it feels easier feels more tangible than looking to Jesus. I know that if I am struggling, this will make me happy. And so I'm going to go to that thing. And it's just like Israel turning to Egypt for their salvation instead of turning to God. It's looking to something else to save them rather than looking to the one who has saved them. And the more we do that, the less inclined we are to receive joy from God. It's like pouring a splash of water on a desert ground. Right? It might seem refreshing at first, but ground just sucks it up and it's gone. But a life of following Jesus will not only transform our hearts and give us more joy, but it transforms the world around us. Do you remember that scene uh, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia in The Magician's Nephew when Aslan is walking through uh, the uncreated Narnia, and he's singing and the world is, 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 is bursting to life. I think this is what the world looks like to the people of God when we are walking in trust in him for our redemption, walking in trust for God, for our joy. The joy wells up in us. And as the church moves throughout this world, just life comes to, it's contagious. Joy is contagious. Imagine Carpinteria as beautiful as it is. All of the churches gathering for worship and leaving in joy and experiencing this city coming to greater life than it ever imagined. See, Christmas is often polarizing. 
can make people, it's the most wonderful time of year, bring all kinds of joy, and sometimes it makes people recognize the joy that they don't have, remember the friends and family that they don't have, the life that they don't have that they want, and so it can be very polarizing. One event, the same event, causing two very different reactions. Jesus is very polarizing. When Jesus comes into a situation, it can cause great joy for some and, and repel others. So because Jesus brings both judgment and redemption. He brings salvation and, as our text says, vengeance and recompense. Jesus brings judgment for our sin, but he brings redemption for the sinner. And so don't let your love for the things of this world keep you from being redeemed from this world. Don't let your love for the happiness and the the little pleasures that this world provide keep you from lasting joy. The presence of Christ is available to us in this place. And if we see him as a threat to the things that we love, our lives will be like a garden shriveling up into a desert. But if we see him as the life that we need, then even the desert places of our life will blossom and bloom with good things. The reason we can experience life as a garden and not a desert is because of Jesus, because he has redeemed you, he has made you holy, and following him is the way into the presence of everlasting joy. Let's pray together. Jesus, we rejoice in who you are and what you have done. Lord, we rejoice that you have redeemed us, that you have made us holy, that you are the power for our joy. And so, Lord, I know lots of us are experiencing lots of different things in life and in the world right now. And joy feels far away, but you are near. And where you are, there is fullness of joy. Psalm 16 says that in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so God, whether we have good things in life to celebrate or difficult things in life to celebrate, I pray that we would enter your presence in this place and know that you are the greatest reason to celebrate, that we can have everlasting joy. Lord, stir us up to rejoice in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.